welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. I'm Jay. And this is our review of King Kong vs. Godzilla, starring Tadayo Takashima, Kinji Sahara, Yu Fujika, Ichiro Arashima, Mie Hami, Jun Tazaki, and most importantly, Shoichi Hirose as King Kong, and the legendary Haruo Nakajima as Godzilla. Directed by Ichiro Honda, with special effects by the King of the Kaiju, Eiji Subara. Released in 1963 on a budget of $620,000, it grossed an impressive $10.3 million at the global box office, at $6 million in Japan alone. That's the highest box office attendance figures of any Godzilla movie to date. Now, this movie was an immediate success and has been credited with both saving the Godzilla franchise from dormancy and kicking off the kaiju craze that continues to this day thanks in no small part to the wild success of this movie. Now, Jay... What history do you have, if any, with King Kong versus Godzilla? I know I've seen this somewhere along the way. The English version like landed on TBS and stuff growing up, and I know I watched it because any kind of mashup monsters versus monsters, I mean it's like it's it's a total boy thing, right? Growing up. Uh yeah, I know I've seen this. Um I know the King Kong movies well, know a lot of the Godzilla stuff well. I can't quote it, you know, chapter and verse, but I do know it pretty well and i know i've seen this one before and i mean the reason we're doing this right is because there's a new one out right now as we speak and in pure film strip fashion we're going to do like the one from the 60s because that's that's (laughs) what we do here but no i yeah i've seen this before and uh you know i'm just going to go ahead and say it right now i've always been team godzilla uh i've always liked the godzilla uh monster better he's my favorite of these two um so it's going to be an interesting discussion to get into because uh you clearly left out all the white dudes they stuck in this movie um, to, to make it the English language version. Uh, and that's the one that I watched. I mean, that's the one that I watched too, but none of those guys matter no, they to don't. me. <laughs> uh, now, it's funny. I've always been Team King Kong. Maybe it's because I'm a, a large, hairy gentleman. <laughs> uh, so maybe Kong and I have something in common. But yeah, I've always been kind of Team King Kong, but at a certain point, it doesn't really matter because Godzilla kind of goes from the bad guy to the good guy to the anti-hero, back to the good guy, back to the bad guy. Big G has been all over the map. King Kong has also been all over the map. But uh, for me, the thing that hits home the most is, as Dino De Laurentiis said for his 1970s version of King Kong, when monkey die everybody cry <laughs> and i am one of everybody yeah yeah i think that's where i really got interested in king kong because i saw that right at the right preteen age where jessica lang and that uh, unbelievable attire that she had on in that would have been oh, the yeah. uh, the reason to watch that movie and 200 percent. yeah so yeah I, I that was my introduction to king kong many years later i saw the the one from the 30s the original and then um i'm one of the few people on earth that doesn't absolutely hate the peter jackson version i think you could trim 45 minutes out of it and you have a great 
great movie, but I think it's pretty good for what it is. And I saw it in theaters. I will admit to the guilty pleasure of the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie. I saw that in theaters as well. Um, and I, and I've seen the, the more recent iterations that these monsters have created as well. I mean, I saw the first Godzilla in theaters because Brian Cranston told me he was the star of it. And that was the lie, uh, Mari Povich style. And so because of that, I didn't see Kong Island in theaters, but I did see it uh, later and, and regretted not seeing it in theaters because it's really good. Then I went and saw King of Monsters and loved it because I thought that was exactly what that first movie should have been. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pumped. I have held off watching the new Godzilla Kong uh, HBO Max theater release until after we did this review because I didn't want it to cloud my judgment for this one. But yeah, I, th- I think the reason I liked Godzilla though, man, my brother and I shared a like huge toy Godzilla that where you pull this little lever on the back of his neck growing up and his, his uh, paper tongue shot out. And I just thought that was the coolest damn thing ever. And so, yeah, um, always been team Godzilla. We did weird science, you know, a few years ago and Godzilla kind of shows up in that. It's sort of a T-Rex. It's sort of a Godzilla. It's sort of a lot of things. And, uh, Fisher Stevens racially shoots it in the stomach. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's my, uh, background with, uh, with Godzilla and King Kong. But I, I want to say though, too, I think these kind of mashup movies have always intrigued me because they rarely ever get it right. I mean, Alien versus Predator and Aliens versus Predator Requiem are two very good examples of not doing it right. Freddy versus Jason, mostly not right. I mean, it, it, this rarely works, but I am always an easy lay for it. For some reason, I will, I will go for this every time they put it in front of me, even though I know it's not going to be good. And if you're interested, folks, you can find our Freddy versus Jason review in the Filmstrip archives. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into the plot summary. Unlike this movie, I'm not going to going to mess around too much. We're just going to like go right for it because they can't shoot their uh, budgetary wad immediately. But we can jump right into our podcast because it's free. <laughs> okay, so plot summary for King Kong vs. Godzilla is as follows. And it's very long and I apologize in advance. For a movie with absolutely no plot, there's a lot of plot in this thing. It's amazing how much shit goes on in the movie with no plot. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. So, we're going to kick this off. A wild swing in global temperature breaks up a bunch of icebergs in the Bering Sea. And as the ice flows down to Japan, it brings with it Japan's greatest enemy, slash hero, slash anti-hero. Frozen in ice since the events of the last movie, a UN submarine accidentally runs across the iceberg containing none other than Godzilla. He breaks out of the iceberg, goes smashy smashy, then makes his way to Hokkaido, or Hokido as they keep saying it in this movie, and runs afoul of the Japanese military. But as we all know, no amount of toy tanks, fireworks can stop Big G when he's got a taste for Japanese, so he'll be back. But this time, perhaps, the Japanese will be ready for him? Question mark? Tired of monsters all over the news and getting all the publicity over their miracle new anti-pain medication, the giant red berry, the Pacific Pharmaceuticals Company dispatches a team of scientists, one a hunk, one a Jerry Lewis, plus a Gilligan, to get their mon- to get a monster of their very own from Faroe Island. Not me, a Faroe. F-A-R-O-E. The unfriendly natives there say that they use the juice of the red berry to pacify their jungle god, so the PPC is going to get their hands on the very on their very own kaiju one way or another, and they decide to head into the jungle to find it. But an earthquake and lightning conspire to turn our scientists around, and they head back to camp. However, 
The thing we thought was an earthquake wasn't an earthquake. It was a giant octopus emerging from the sea. The natives try to fight it off with spears, and the scientists try to fight it off with rifles, but they don't have any luck as their giant god shows up to protect them. Introducing none other than King Kong. He chases off the octopus and gets absolutely hammered off of the berry juice, but an idea forms during a big race of song and dance number. It wouldn't be a Kong movie without someone trying to make a few bucks off of him, and it wouldn't be a Kong movie without him running wild. Cue Godzilla versus Kong versus humanity? Whoever wins, we all lose. The Pacific Pharmaceutical Company brings Kong to Japan on a giant raft, only to run afoul of the Japanese government who says, absolutely not, you're not bringing a giant monkey onto a, our country, we already have a big problem with Godzillas. In fact, the army has already set up their first Godzilla trap, involving dynamite, gasoline, and what looks like an old quarry? Now, Godzilla stumbles right into the thing, and they blow the dynamite up. Hugh Yardley Smith yelling, Godzilla, are you dead? <laughs> no, he's not dead, he's just pissed off. They set up a second trap for Godzilla, but the electrical wires used only draw Kong in, where he promptly grabs the romantic subplot girlfriend and heads for the closest tall building to try to get his dick wet. <laughs> The Japanese military try to knock Kong out with rockets full of berry juice because nothing sets the mood like sharing a bottle of wine and some romantic drum music. <laughs> it works. Kong falls asleep. But as Kong sleeps and they rescue romantic subplot girlfriend, the Japanese military comes up with a brilliant idea. You've got two giant monsters, right? King Kong, Godzilla. What would happen if you brought Kong and Godzilla together and had them fight each other? If Godzilla is hanging out at Mount Fuji, then you got to bring the hug over Kong there to kick off the climax of the film. Now, Godzilla gets a very, very strong heel booking. <laughs> he beats the tar out of King Kong, and now he smothers not only one, but a couple of decent babyface comebacks. There's a good false finish as Kong gets smashed and Godzilla buries him like a cat burying a turn. There's another comeback denied as Godzilla hits the big boot and Kong's down again. Kong then gets hit, hit by lightning twice, and now he's making his Rock and Roll Express Ricky Morton-style comeback. Kong gets the upper hand. Ground and pound. Electric slaps. Hip toss. Sumo grapple. The two make short work of the announcer's pagoda. Then both of them take that New Jack slash Vic Grimes slash Matt Hardy versus Sammy Guevara AEW bump into the ocean. Triggering an earthquake from a different movie and a no contest. Godzilla disappears. And Kong walks into the sunset. To the approval of the audience, as credits roll. I gotta tell you, I never realized where the cop-out ending of Freddy versus Jason came from, and now I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> we can decide who wins, so F it. Maybe both of them did. Maybe nobody did. No, it is the perfect Eric Bischoff blow-off, no-finish uh, of all time. <laughs> Now, you throw Eric Bischoff under the bus, but this goes back well before Eric Bischoff's time in WCW. It does. I've been watching a lot of OSW lately, old school wrestling podcast, and they do video reviews. Yep. And pretty much every Jim Duggan match they cover ends up with a double disqualification, a double countout, a brawl to the back, a no contest. For whatever reason, Jim Duggan gets the Godzilla booking. That's because Jim Duggan would not do the job for anybody after a certain amount of time. And clearly, that's what is going on here. And, and Yeah, and while there's a clear winner, and even Toho has come out and said, yes, in this movie, King Kong wins, 
it's not a clear, clean victory. Uh, Godzilla doesn't get pinned for the three count. And it sets up potential other movies that just didn't end up happening. Yeah, like they talked about doing this again and again and again, right? And it never happened. Like of all the lexicon of Godzilla and King Kong, they kept trying to put this back together. But it's, what, only now that they finally got it done? I, I, I find that amazing. Uh, not because, I mean, King Kong's an RKO property, so you got to license that over, right? And Godzilla's clearly Toho. But... I mean, clearly they got the money together to make that work and it made a ton of money. <laughs> like that's the thing is this made everybody money. And even so that they said, Hey, let's put some white people in it and throw it in America. And that worked. And uh, you didn't even talk about that. Like the, the setup device for that, we got to talk about that freaking UN news <laughs> channel or whatever. All right. So let's just go ahead and jump right into the origins of this particular movie. Yeah. I, I got to know. This goes back to three years previous to the release where Willis O'Brien you may know from the original King Kong, had the idea for a movie where King Kong would fight a giant version of Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> now, he goes to RKO, who owned the rights to Kong, to get money, but they actually weren't a studio anymore. They were just kind of a rights-holding company. But uh, a producer named John Beck, who worked at RKO, took that treatment, had it made it to a script, and started shopping it around Hollywood. Eventually, it ends up at the desks at Toho, and Toho was looking for a big movie to fill out their 30th anniversary film slate. So they already had, like, Sanjuro, the Akira Kurosawa movie, and a couple other flicks. Yeah. And they were like, well, we need a giant monster movie because one of our biggest hits was Godzilla. Yeah, we got to have a Godzilla movie. It's it's like MGM not having a Bond flick at, a, at an anniversary year, right? Exactly. But this all happens without Willis O'Brien having any idea. But Toho buys the rights to the movie from John Beck. They rewrite the script, and they turn it into King Kong versus Godzilla. So not only did Willis O'Brien get screwed out of this credit for the story <laughs> idea, uh, none other than King Kong mastermind Mary Cooper was so pissed off about the fact that they made King Kong a guy in an ape suit rather than like a stop motion special effect that he sued literally everyone he could get his hands on to try and get this project stopped. Yeah. But obviously, he Hey, failed. that Toho money runs deep, man. <laughs> You're not going to stop that. <laughs> that Toho money runs deep and that RKO money runs deep. So Toho owned the rights to this movie in Asia. John Beck retained that international distribution rights. So America, Mexico, South America, Europe, he owned all of that. So he brings in a couple of guys and an editor to basically chop up, recut, reshuffle, and film the framing device of the United Nations News Network <laughs> to plop, uh, to turn this movie from a Japanese monster movie to an international monster movie. He even goes so far as to cut in special effects from a different Toho movie called the Mysterians, into this movie when he wasn't satisfied with the earthquake that announced Kong's appearance the first time. I thought something looked really weird when the octopus showed up and all that shit. I'm glad you called that out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he makes that TV news framing device up. He replaces literally every piece of music, and then they chop it, screw it, remix it into the American version. Now, in the 70s, Toho did this thing called basically, it was basically Toho's Children's Theater. So Ichiro Honda took the existing negative of Kong vs. Godzilla, cut 24 minutes out of it, and made it into a 70-minute version that could be shown on television fit for kids. He didn't cut up a copy of the original negatives. He cut the original negatives. Oh! <laughs> yes. So the Kong vs. Godzilla that we get right now is uh, one that has been like painstakingly restored from 
16 millimeter reels, old beat up movie reels that were shown in theaters, laser discs. This is like my original VHS copy of Halloween, the producer's cut Curse of Michael Myers. It was like a dubbed VHS of all kinds of stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah, basically it was like that plus all the missing episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> so the the version that we watched, the Criterion rip of the Blu-ray that was on the Internet Archive is kind of really impressive considering the amount of work that had to be put in by lots of different people to reassemble this movie back into something resembling the original cut, the American cut, any different kind of cut. That That is an amazing story of how it even come together. I knew there had to be some bit about uh, there was an American rights holder or he bought it or something like that. And then he just shoved all the you know generic white people into the English set and the Hawaiian guy playing uh, uh, Hispanic or whatever um, to try to try to you know be the Chile uh, correspondent. Um, I, yeah. I, lo- I love the conceit here. And this could only exist in the 1960s before we really got to look at what they were about, that the the UN could pull it together enough to actually have a news network. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, I feel like this is what gave Ted Turner the idea for CNN. Uh, yes, and uh, maybe we can blame a, this for that. Because <laughs> it's an international 24-hour news network. Yeah. With, okay. With the guy's just reading off of, like, pages they just handed him. He's not even teleprompter. He just wheels around in his soap opera, uh, you know, pre-JRUing uh, recliner and says, here's the latest news from Japan. And he just d- does the generic white guy thing. And it's, it's funny, though, man, because I'm watching this and I'm cracking up going, how quaint that, like, movie audiences, again, this is the world is no internet. Like, you have to think about the 60s. People would have no idea that, like, that wasn't how it was supposed to be. You know, because this was the Nickelodeon uh, middle of the day matinee kind of flick. This is a B monster movie from the '60s. This is running next to the Blob and them and all that shit. Now, what's funny is John Beck claims to have spent two hundred thousand dollars in the process of Americanizing this movie. But all that said, now the original movie itself is beautiful. It's shot in widescreen. Mm-hmm. It's the first color Godzilla movie. It's the one of the first Toho movies to be released with a stereo sound, uh, with a stereo soundtrack. So it sounds great. Mm-hmm. It looks really good. It's super well shot, at least the Japanese portions. Now, how bad is that UN news set? All I was thinking about was the MRI set from after last season, which was somebody's grandma's <laughs> extra bedroom or something like that. Like literally, like you wrote that down and I was like, yes, it is somebody's like, or, or it's that room at the top of the church annex that has that little fake stage on it where they do the puppet show for the kids. Cause that's what, it, that's what it looked like to me. That's, that's where I was going with this. Um, but you know yeah, what? And, uh... I will say for as much as we're banging on it and it is silly and it is very generic and stuff. It's actually not a terrible framing device for for how they do this because if you tried to go with the japanese one which is evil pharmaceutical company does something stupid i mean like we would accept that now in the 1960s we may not have we still had hope in america and uh you know it only took 10 years for that to dash and we've never had it again but yeah that's that's my thought on that i was like you had to have something that people would buy and what was big in america in the 1960s ron your your nightly newscast, Walter Cronkite. You know, you invited him into your living room, and that's essentially what they're using as the setup here. So I'll give him credit for finding a way that would have spoke to audiences at the time. Now he does have a great voice. We'll put it that yeah. way. He does sound good. He looks the part, but you can see the tacks that are holding the UN flag up to the wall. You can see the map 
you can see creases in the map where they unfolded a map of the world and just <laughs> stuck it on a piece of cardboard. It does not hold up to <laughs> HD. It does not hold up to... It would hold up to VHS, possibly. Yeah. But that's even kind of stretching it. I mean, I had this playing on my 70-inch television at home, and I can tell you, it's not. No, you can see all the seams, all the cracks. In the American stuff, I got I to gotta really applaud the Japanese part of this. When we've got... And I know it's two men in suits. Honestly, they do a hell of a performance to not make it feel like two people in suits. And and all the other stuff in Japan looks amazing. I mean, it's really well shot. Um, eventually, we're going to have to talk about the dubbing that was done because uh, that was awful. But the the uh, the shots look great. The color's amazing. Now, now, did you notice that one of the people uh, dubbed into the romantic subplot was clearly June Foray. I, yeah, I didn't I didn't know that until you mentioned it. I was like, that's... The voice of yeah, Rocket J. Squirrel yes. from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, like, among other things. I'm like, yes, I know this voice. And then I read your notes. I was like, that's who that is. Yes. So, yeah, I was blown away by that. Um, yeah, I, I got to say, uh, it, it's a great way to set us into motion for all the crazy stuff that's going to happen in this movie. And I think it's hilarious that... A UN submarine gets stuck on an iceberg, which is holding Godzilla. And and I didn't know that about like the previous movie it was held. So I had to look that up. And I was like, did Godzilla get trapped by a, a glacier or something? And sure enough, that was great. I'm like, man, <laughs> we're paying that off from way back. I, that's uh, that's continuity for you. Yeah, I believe it was what seven years between this movie and the last Godzilla movie. Yeah, I mean it's it, they're really going into it. Which uh, to go forward again to our Freddy versus Jason action. Where were those two characters when they finally hooked up? Jason was in hell because of Jason goes to hell and Freddy had been forgotten because everybody in Elm Street started taking drugs. And that, you know, that was it. So I was like, you know, I'll give them credit for having to, for finding these two people, uh, these two main characters, not people, these animals, you know, monsters, whatever, where we last left them. Um, now speaking of drugs, how do you feel about the, um, uh, the subplot involving Soma, the mystery liquid made out of the giant red berries. I, I'm, from Mo- I, I'm just sitting there going somewhere. Aldous Huxley is going. That's that's not what I had in mind. But but okay, <laughs> um, if that's what we're gonna do. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a whole bit of jingoistic other that's a part of this movie that you just have to accept about these kind of movies as to how they operated (laughs) that somewhere deep in a jungle there's this mysterious flower that can cure everyone i think there was an anaconda sequel about that too by the way blood orchid or something like that yes anaconda search for the blood i thought i thought it was and that may have to (laughs) come down the line eventually too but but yeah i I remember that and i'm like okay so yeah this is kind of a recycled plot but here's where it starts but then i started digging in through the internet i said oh no it didn't start here it started way back like we've always had to go find the mysterious tribe of the hidden mist and their secret flower of you know youth forever or whatever and i, I love it though that like the the, the pharmaceuticals company is like we just need something that knocks everybody out so essentially what we're seeing is proto nyquil happen <laughs> that's what i find amazing yeah now they they have to journey to a to what to Faroe island to get that proto NyQuil, mm-hmm. except NyQuil is mostly just alcohol yeah. plus some chemicals. And in this case, it's just the juice of a big red berry. But they have to go to a very interesting island that I have dubbed Blackface Island. <laughs> now, quick question. It's 
still racist for a Japanese person to put on brown face, yes, right? Yes, completely. <laughs> but that's basically our big introduction to our main hunk scientist and his goofy sidekick. Corns the Coward is what I call them because he's always talking about his corns and how they detect monsters. And he's practically wetting his pants every time they do anything. Yes. They have a sidekick that I can only describe as brown face Japanese Gilligan because <laughs> he's wearing the uh, boonie cap and he's like simpering around like a Gilligan yes, type character. Completely. He's, he's, you know what he is? He is the proto version of Nervous Ron if you've ever played GTA 5. That's who that character is. Oh. So that, that's what I think he is at least. Uh, it, Good catch. Yeah. Now, to me, he was just brown face Gilligan and I'll call him brown face Gilligan throughout the whole thing. <laughs> now, they end up on what I've just decided to stop calling Pharaoh Island and call Monster Island, even though Monster Island is like 10 years later in the, the uh, Godzilla mythology. Still, it's it's the beginning of that idea. You can see it. It's an island with a bunch of monsters on it. Mm-hmm. And in this case, there is the Jungle God, which we will later come to find out is King Kong. And there are some giant squids. Yeah, What's with the octopus? I have a question for you. Was that a real octopus? Because if it's not, that is some hella puppetry. That was not one real octopus. That was four real octopi. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, yes. So there's no claim about the animals not being hurt in the making of this movie. Well, they weren't actually hurt. They used hot air to kind of get the, get the octopus to move where they wanted it to move. Now, one octopus was hurt during the filming, but that's because he became Eiji Subara's lunch. <laughs> Literally, one of the octopus was eaten for dinner by the special effects coordinator, and the other three were let go. Wow. There also was a puppet octopus that you see Kong wrestling with, and that was basically a toy octopus that they covered with plastic wrap to make it look slimy. Yeah, I saw the saran wrap, like, because the octopus changed colors from its reddish brown, because all, all the rest, all of them look the same. And then when Kong picks it up to, you know, power bomb it, I'm like, oh, it's all of a sudden very clear. Did the octopi change color around them? Like, I know squids can, but I, I didn't know they could camo like a chameleon. But uh, now, now that you say it's covered in saran wrap, it makes a lot more sense. Now, they may not be able to, but either way, Kong kicks the crap out of this squid or this octopus, excuse me. And then we get a prolonged racist <laughs> dance scene yes. slash drum scene slash native chanting. I think it's supposed to be like a worship thing that Kong is their god, right? And well, he is the jungle god, yeah, right, obviously. Yeah. And so like in our lens now, it looks like, oh gosh, that's that's kind of strange. But I'm I'm th- I'm trying to put on my hat of like, if I was in the 60s, what would I expect to happen next? Their god has just smashed their enemy. They're going to worship in the way that we think jungle people would worship. I mean, that's just reality. So we we get a Bollywood dance-off. Yeah, starring a someone who's supposed to be a mom, but is a little too hot to be a mom. Yeah, a little bit. There's one <laughs> There's one of these jungle dancers who's clearly wearing like a, an extremely padded bra. I just thought that was the 60s. I mean, I just, I just wrote it off as that. That's fair, but if you look at her compared to all the other dancers, she's got two big talents that the other dancers like. This is true. There was one that kept getting featured for that, yes. Yeah, and she's got a subplot and... I'm honestly really surprised that Kong didn't like pick her up and and molest her because that's Kong's thing. Yeah, can we talk about that? That that never gets brought up enough. But Kong's thing is he always tries to make it, usually with the blonde girl, you know. But this time he's like going, no, we don't have any of those, so I'll go with this. Kong is kind of a kind of a horn dog. Like he he gets a he gets his fight on, and it's like okay, now I got to go take care. You know, I mean, really, like that's that's the uh, scary part of Kong. 
We'll go back to Kong being super horny later because that definitely comes back yes. later in the movie. Yes, it does. But at this point, the uh, the uh, Asian dancer is just mildly inconvenienced by Kong and threatened. But once Kong defeats the octopus, he finds some big jars of that red berry juice and he just decides to get absolutely hammered. So Kong chugs those and passes out to the... Um, soothing drum music i guess i mean to him maybe it is right so but what we, we've already set up in this movie because we've had the godzilla the initial attack where he wipes out the japanese army base and all those little like you remember those little tanks you could get that were fireworks when you were a kid that's that's kind of like what these look like they're all made out of wax and they just I, I, I got so quaint of somebody you know throwing the blowtorch at that and there was something that i saw in here though that i did not realize the new godzilla movies had picked up and and were using you know, if you watch the new Godzilla movies, when Godzilla really wants to, you know, throw the atomic breath, he powers up and like his spikes on his back all light up. I I saw that and this I was like, ah, I I had forgotten that that was like an original thing for Godzilla, and I love that they they've carried that through here and that it, it happens so many times. Again, I'm the easy mark for Godzilla. You've described him as pretty much Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I think that's pretty fair. And and <laughs> and I mean, I love that because he just he's like, you woke me up. I was sleeping in my iceberg in your fucking submarine and you know okay fine then and he goes in there and just lays hell down on the uh the town and i yeah you know, i thought it was i thought it looked great i mean it's it's so not what we would hold as standard or expect today but it completely works because of all the model work and the the big man in the suit and the special effects and all that stuff i i love it man i love that first attack of that that village we just wipes it out yeah i love that first attack that godzilla does and i love the first appearance of king kong where he fights the giant squid or the giant octopus i keep saying that because it makes me think of his first appearance in the original King Kong yes. where he shows up to fight those dinosaurs on Skull Island. Yes. And he has to fight those dinosaurs off and it's like, okay, that alone establishes to us that King Kong has a problem with the reptile. Yes. He he is not a fan of the lizard. Um, it's probably because they're so misrepresented. You know, now we know that the lizards probably had feathers and hair, but back then they were just these, you know, snakes with legs. And, and sometimes they were just snakes. And King Kong has to snap their jaws in half. And that's what he lives to do. And, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I like it. And, and we set up the tension, right? Because the idea is that the scientists see this, and that's when they get the brilliant idea of like, hey... What if we took him back and we stuck him in front of Japanese problems known as Godzilla? Maybe just naturally stuff would go down. Now, it takes them a minute to get to that. Their first mm -hmm. thought is, uh, well, the first thought of the head of the Pacific Pharmaceuticals Company is bring that big monster back. We need a monster to sell our mystery juice. We need a monster to sell this big berry, this red berry juice. And what better than a gorilla slash opiate addict. I mean, if it knocks him out, what will it do for you at home? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's and it's very much everybody's paying attention to Godzilla and nobody's paying attention to us. So we're going to get our own giant monster. So now that Kong's drunk, they load him on a raft. They hook him to the back of a boat. They take him to Japan. And then the head of the Pacific Pharmaceutical Company shows up dressed like Groucho Marx playing Captain Spaulding. <laughs> yes. But... If Groucho Marx was also Woody Allen. <laughs> and this is one of the worst parts of the movie, just because this is the goofiest, kiddiest part of this whole flick. You know, this is where you let the audience like come down off the high, though. 
because you can't keep the tension ramped the whole way. Like not, not everybody's uh, your Fury Road, where it's one hour of badassery one direction and another hour of badassery the other direction. Like at some point, we have to let everybody come down. That was the story structure. So we got to have the funny part. We got to let everybody kind of relax. Uh, it's the part in Jaws three when they're just screwing around SeaWorld. Uh, you know, in between you know some loser getting killed at a at a thing and Leah Thompson getting bitten. Uh, yes, I know Jaws three that well. And so this is the same thing. It's that same story beat. Is we got to let everybody down. We're going to have something for the kids so they kind of calm down in their popcorn seats and all of that stuff. Because then we're really going to hit them with it when we give them, you know, Kong versus Zilla one and two. We get both of them in this movie. So I, I get why it's there, but I'm not going to disagree with you that it's not the dumbest, kiddiest part of the film. And also the shoehorned, ham fisted, sideways romantic tension of the film uh, that just doesn't work. It's, uh, it's not there. Well, here's the thing originally, this movie was legitimately like a serious flick. But in Ishiro Honda, when he wrote the script, he took the idea of the monsters fighting and he added all the parts about the satire of the Japanese television industry and the pharmaceutical company. He added all that stuff. He was crit highly critical of commercials. He was highly critical of the concept of television ratings. He was very much a, a guy who was supporting the, the BBC model and not the American model of television. And Japan was very much the American model where ratings mattered and eyeballs mattered. Now, Eiji Subara, the special effects guy, was the dude who had the idea to make Godzilla more child-friendly, and that was actually kind of a big point of contention between him and the rest of the special effects crew and Ishiro Honda, because they were all like, no, and Eiji Subara was like, yes, this is our bread and butter. These kids are our bread and butter. So he's the one who pushed for the whole child-friendly part, and Honda pushed for the whole part where it was basically a satire of the TV industry. You've got those two compelling, competing uh, mindsets, and then you have, on the third hand, John Beck shows up, edits this movie to absolute shit, rewrites a bunch of stuff, adds a framing device. We are halfway to two-thirds of the way through this movie, depending on where you want to put this uh, portion of the flick. How is this movie's tone holding up for you? It's not. It's like I'm trying to watch Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop and then the animated RoboCop smashed together in the same movie. It doesn't work. Like, it's all over the place. And while I, while I gave the movie the pass for this is where you have the come down and you let everybody kind of chill, you don't change the movie that they're watching in the middle of it to something else unless you're, you know, the friggin' Coen brothers or something. Uh, and that is not what this movie is set out to be. By the way, can you imagine a Coen Brothers Godzilla King Kong movie just for a second? No, it would all be from the like the point of view of one of the cameramen for the news crew or something. <laughs> Who's just three days from retirement and ready to not be there. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but no, I... I <laughs> It's, it's a little all over the place. And had it continued on another four or five minutes like this, I was going to message you and go, Ron, I don't know that I can finish this. But then we finally got monsters back in there. And so it works. So it's, it, to me, we'll just keep with our wrestling theme since we, we've started the whole show with it. It's like watching that Clash of the Champions where you know there's that two out of three falls Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair match coming, but you got to get through all that bullshit in the middle. <laughs> and it's a long <laughs> way to get to that two out of three falls match, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, definitely. And one good thing I'll say is they don't waste a ton of time on any of these subplots. They're, it's The subplots merely serve as a reason to involve the monsters with these people. Right. Because romantic subplot guy has to go to Hokkaido to save his girlfriend from the monsters because she's going up to Hokkaido because she thinks his plane has crashed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So they find good ways to put these people in the path of these two giant monsters and not to deny us the giant monster fights that we're all here for. Because we get the initial clash of King Kong versus Godzilla about this time. And it's pretty clear that at least in the first clash, Godzilla is is the has the upper hand. Godzilla is the more powerful monster. He's literally got the high ground, Anakin. I mean, he, he does. And he's going to try to cremate this big ape, which is not a bad strategy. If you're, if you're Godzilla, you're like, well, he's going to throw rocks at me all day. So maybe I'll just burn all the shit around him and it'll catch him on fire. And that'll be it. What I love is King Kong backs up and kind of like rubs his stomach and puts himself out. And he's like, oh, damn, that kind of hurt. <laughs> like, okay. I'm going to back off now, but we're coming back later. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, he does turn around and walk away very much like y'all i'm coming back <laughs> like he's not done you know and you can tell that he's going to get a run in later on uh when godzilla oh, least respects it but yeah no I, I like it though i love the fight when they finally get them together and you make a great point there is no reason to follow any of these human characters you don't have to care about them at all you just have to keep up with them because they're leading you to where you want to be which is the monster fights yeah and they also lead us past the first a fight which Godzilla wins the first round 10-9 on points to the the setup for the second fight. Basically, these scientists, as the King Kong experts, go back and run into the Japanese military who are setting up what is essentially a Godzilla trap. And there is a great shot of all these toys. Yes. Basically building a pit. Like, there's these electric-powered uh, diggers... There's all these little moving bulldozers, and they're 100% just models or toys or whatever, what you want to call them, but they're absolutely really cool, and it, co- it ties back to a thing that is said earlier in this movie, where Godzilla is afraid of slash hurt by electricity, but King Kong gets stronger every time he's exposed to electricity. So this is basically our setup for the second fight. They string these high-tension wires up to keep Godzilla out, but the high-tension wires are enough to draw King Kong back in. Well, I want to ask you a question about that. Is, is it just the electricity? Or I had a theory in my head that it was the electricity plus the amount of great red berry juice he had going in him. That it's like he electrified the lean, and then all of a sudden it really <laughs> really got him jacked. You know, and he was ready to go. So so it changed it from lean to four loco? Yes, yes, yes. King Kong was on the four loco. Yes, I can see this. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if four loco is listening, please bring back the original formulation of four loco. Let's just do this thing. <laughs> a surge, the alcohol drink. <laughs> Every, everybody's been locked in quarantine for a year. Let's just bring back the full four loco and have all the weirdos get crazy. <laughs> but. No, that makes total sense. We don't know how this red berry juice interacts with Kong's nervous system. We don't know how this red berry juice interacts with electricity. Prior to the introduction of this red berry juice, King Kong was never like never got jacked off of electricity. So maybe there is something to your theory that this juice <laughs> I- increases his power. But basically what we're doing is we're setting up the we're getting them both in kind of the same neighborhood to kind of set up the second fight, the bigger fight of this movie with Godzilla on the outside of the wires and Kong on the inside of the wires. And 
a bunch of Japanese people fleeing in all directions. So when you told me this was supposed to be Godzilla versus a giant Frankenstein monster, there's something that happens in the last part of this movie that com- they feel like they just left that in there. Where King Kong is down for the count, and then he gets struck by lightning, Jason Live style, and then he's back and he's badder than ever. You know? Oh, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. I, I wonder if they just held onto that. Like, you know what? That's actually a good idea. But before we get there, we have King Kong has to finally get his hands on a hottie. Yes. So he he goes into the wire and he ends up grabbing a, a chunk of a, a train and he grabs Science Hunk's girlfriend, who is very pretty and she's wearing a bright yellow dress. So that ties back into your thing about Kong having a thing for blondes. Mm-hmm. And then she gets picked up and she gets to do her best Fay Ray impression where she's screaming in the hand, this giant gorilla puppet hand. And she's kind of kicking around, and I'm I'm a little surprised that they went with her and they didn't bring back the uh, padded bra dancer mom from Blackface Island. She never got picked up and, and jostled around by Kong, and she was just asking for it. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> like her whole point in this movie is to be menaced by Kong, and uh, they have the opportunity on Monster Island, and they ignore it in favor of this romantic subplot girl who's. I've never known her name. I refuse to learn her name. I'm telling you, it's the golden dress, man. It's the blonde thing. It's Kong has a thing for the blondes. It's it's well established in cinema history at this point. He will not break for brunettes. He he goes for the blondes. That's what he does. He, he goes for blondes, but I, I guess uh, a Japanese woman will get a pass from him as long as she's yelling, uh, wearing yellow. She's wearing yellow, and she's screaming incredibly loud, which is also a like I think it's a thing for Kong. Is like. Yes, the more you scream, the more the red berry juice pulses or whatever. Like, I know we're, we're sounding like a couple of Thario's here, but it's true. Like, watching the movies, the more they scream, the more Kong is like, oh, yeah, this that's what you want, right? I, I'll be scary for you. You know, they really play that up on poor Naomi Watts, goodness gracious, in that Peter Jackson movie. Oh, yeah, movie. 100%. Yeah, um, which probably the best actress to ever play one of Kong's uh, female interests or whatever along the way but bless her heart she got nothing to do with that, that poor film i don't know jessica lang is is just as decorated of an actress I think. I think we like her because she's she's had such a long career and i mean nowadays like if you've seen the incredible work she did on those years of american horror stories stuff it's hard to deny but naomi watts is an incredible actress and has had the same range so it's you know they they're right in the same club i would oh say. i'm 100 not going after naomi watts as a quality of an actress she's great but I would like to see Naomi Watts at like 60 do Constance Langdon from the first season of American Horror That Story. we're probably only a few years away from, by the way, because Naomi is almost 50, I think, now. So she's not that far away. I will say this, though. What we're both agreeing on is that uh, King Kong Lives Linda Hamilton is not the kind of actress that King Kong is going to go for. Sorry, uh, Terminator Mom. Uh, but uh, you suck in that movie. And that movie is awful. <laughs> and I like Linda Hamilton, just not in that. No, movie. not not remotely. It's it's well. There's nothing to like in that movie. It's awful. It was shot in Georgia, and that tells you everything you need to know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's awful. Uh, no, I I like that he has to take time out because I think this is the thing we're supposed to know from this is that Godzilla has no quarter for anybody. He has no f's to give, and he gives none. King Kong will stop for love, and that's what's supposed to make him more relatable to us. And I mean, you know, if, if you follow theories of evolution and things like that, we, we 
uh, you know, descended from apes. There, there's a kinship, you know, between Kong and us. Whereas Godzilla is this freak of nature dinosaur lizard from hell that we we need to put back in the glacier. Uh, so we we can't we can't deal with him. Uh, we can't relate to him on any level. That's why Kong is supposed to be our avatar, and he's always billed as the good guy who gets in bad situations and has to do stuff. But Kong really never does bad things. He wrecks stuff because. If you put that thing in a place where there's breakable stuff, well, that's your fault. You know, I, I was fine in the jungle. You assholes put me on the raft. Uh, which, by the way, how far is that island from Japan? Because that's a hell of a sleep he was on. Now, they kept showing, they kept pointing near, like, New Zealand. Right? That would take a while. <laughs> the South Pacific. Now, originally, this the, the cog portions of this movie were supposed to be shot in, like, Sri Lanka, but they didn't have the money to do it, so they ended up taking it back to Japan, because it's a lot less expensive, which is probably why you had the Japanese guys in blackface. There we go. They, they, now, they made it work, and it's definitely a, a very tropical island sort of picture of Japan, but yeah, King Kong gets distracted by women. They shoot rockets full of the berry juice that explode over his head, so he snorts a bunch of berry juice... Uh, they play some drums over the loudspeaker, and then so you end up with Kong passing out. They're able to rescue romantic subplot girlfriend. Now you've got a giant drugged ape there, and you've got a giant lizard monster hanging out at Mount Fuji. It doesn't take a genius to put two and two together, but I will say, I love the fact that they hook Kong to balloons yeah. using the mystery wire that's introduced in the, like, the very first <laughs> section of the movie. Yes. And then they float King Kong, or what's basically a marionette of King Kong, <laughs> They float him to Mount Fuji, cut him loose, and he just basically like falls down and slides down the side of a mountain while he's still half asleep and crashes into Godzilla. But before we jump into that, I want to talk about the new look for both of these characters. Mm -hmm. Now, Eiji Tsuburaya was working on a different project at this time. But when he heard that Godzilla vs. King Kong was going to happen, he put his other project on hold and immediately dedicated himself to working on this movie. Because, as he says in his autobiography, if it wasn't for Willis O'Brien and the original King Kong, he never would have gotten interested in special effects. A lot of people, Ray Harryhausen among them, was influenced by the original King Kong to the point where they decided that was going to be their life's work. So he did the redesign of King Kong himself. He also did a redesign of, Kong, of Godzilla. But they ran into an issue. They couldn't use King Kong that was a gorilla. Because RKO said you can't use the King Kong that looks like our King Kong. So Subaraya decided to give Kong a different face. And in this movie, he's not a gorilla, but a Japanese macaque. I don't know what those are. <laughs> Uh, if you Google M A C A Q U E, it's a different kind of ja it's it's basically like the big ape on the Japanese island. Okay, so he made Godzilla look less like a, a an African gorilla and more like a, a a monkey that they were used to in Japan, just because RKO wouldn't let them use the original Kong face. I I, I can see that. Yeah. So before we get into the big fight, what do you think about the re the newly redesigned Kong and the newly redesigned Godzilla? I mean, the body types. Are, are fine and, and they work. The faces are different. Like Godzilla has much more of a, what I would call the Dino face from the Flintstones. He's more of a rounded snout. I thought, 
I, and then in other was like he, the the face is peeled back and you see the teeth more. So I, that one was a little inconsistent for me. The the I knew the gorilla face was different because the forehead is is not as big and it, it's it's actually much smaller. Like the rest of the face is longer. It felt like to me. So I knew it looked different, but body wise, I thought they looked fine. And that, and again, I thought our two actors portraying these things went out of their way to not look like two dudes wearing suits. And I know people bang on this movie for that, but I'm like, no, that, that actually adds character to this because you give people giving a performance and they're specifically trying to be two different kinds of animals, which everyone who complains about that, they don't fucking exist. Chill out. I mean, so, so you don't know what one really looked like, uh, but, but I, I like that they gave something to it. I like the suits. And I think every iteration of these movies, there should be some, some evolution to the way these things look. And there's a difference between that way that Godzilla looked in that, that newest reboot and the way he looked in God of Monsters. He's bigger and, and King of, and King of the Monsters, I think. And he's, he's got more of the blue lights and all that other shit going on. Uh, but I thought he, you know, I thought it looked good. I, I like the fact that every time you see these things, they should have a little change. They should be a little different. Like I, I want, I want Jason to evolve. <laughs> I want Freddie to evolve. Right. I kind of want Michael Myers to not, but you know, the, the rest of them can, you know, that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, uh, one of the things they did was they kind of redesigned Godzilla's face to look, make him look a little more lizardy. Yeah, they kind of because in his first appearance he's got those little ear humps, and they kind of took those little ears and got rid of them, and they made him a little more snout forward. Uh, they made the teeth a little more obvious, and obviously King Kong is a completely different kind of ape, but it's also a completely different island that they're finding this giant ape on. They're just kind of giving him the name King Kong. Right. So I agree that they should look a little bit different every time. I agree that I like pretty much all of the changes that they make. Uh, I'm not necessarily crazy about the fact that the poor guy playing King Kong, who I mentioned at the top of the episode, they had to sew him into that suit Ooh. every time. He was in it because otherwise you would see a zipper. Oh. So they sewed him into the suit and when filming was over, they would have to cut him out of the suit and then re-sew it. And he was miserable this whole time because he's in a giant sweat-filled latex and hair-covered monster suit. Like, if you think the Godzilla suit is bad and would be uncomfortable, take the Godzilla suit and then put a bunch of crepe hair on it. Yeah. And it's not actually crepe hair. It's actually, I believe it's yak hair. <laughs> So it's legitimately animal fur stuck to that suit. You're sweating in it 12 hours a day. <laughs> Talk about a miserable day at work. So yeah. to that end, the fact that both of these performers were able to do what they do. And in this fight, we do see Kong do some actual like gymnastics. Yeah. Is really impressive. Oh, but the best man, Godzilla, gets a straight up drop kick in this movie and the tail swipe. I, I loved that. That's what I want Godzilla to do because in, in the Toho movies, that's the thing is when Godzilla leaves his feet, it's serious. It's like, okay, I'm done playing around now. It's time to get real. And that's when he, he leaves. I loved that. I, I thought it looked great. And again, these guys, what I love is that they're just destroying everything around them as they should. That great temple, gone you know that iconic piece yeah now we're gonna walk right over that because that's what you do in these movies right in independence day they blow up the white house and the capitol records building because that's what you want to see in this movie so no i i loved all of that and i loved how it was staged too even if it is a little wonky how they get them together for the final fight eh, we, we knew it was going to happen eventually we needed to get there the balloons were funny the sliding down the mountain was kind of cheesy but the rest of it i was okay i would have been better if kong was coming over on the balloons and Godzilla started like popping the balloons with the, the atomic ray. That would have been cool. 
Yeah, or uh, or Kong sees Godzilla down there and he starts popping the balloons himself because he's got to go mess up that lizard. Yes, exactly. Because we've established that those two monsters don't like each other. And the American cut does a good job of establishing that these two giant monsters can't coexist, regardless of their similarities. And because it ties back to the original King Kong, where he's just messing up those brontosauruses or whatever uh, dinosaur he's supposedly fighting. We know King Kong doesn't like big lizards. We know big lizards doesn't like King Kong. Those two things can't go together. So this, I actually like the part where they drop Kong and he slides down the mountain and kind of crashes into Godzilla. Because it's like, that's the accidental like heels, butt heads <laughs> spot yeah. where you know they're going to start throwing down. Yeah, yeah. And then they immediately start throwing down. So Kong has been established as the thinking ape. So Godzilla's just swiping and he's using his tail swipe. And Kong's trying to maneuver. He's throwing stuff. He's using weapons. Kong's trying to outthink the what was the stronger Godzilla, despite the fact that they're both fairly strong. So my question is, we see Kong like dodge a tail whip and kind of do a barrel roll and crash into some rocks headfirst. So Kong is the thinking one, but do you think he's like overthinking this fight a little bit because yeah, he's been burned by the uh, atomic breath and he doesn't want any of that smoke? I, you know, completely. What he needs to do is go in for the throat and choke slam this fucking lizard off the side of the mountain. <laughs> and that's pretty much what he's eventually going to do is decide, you know, if I get in close, he can't power up the breath enough which is i think is an interesting trope with godzilla is is he can do he's he's going to keep you at the distance he's going to linux lewis your ass to death but if you get inside on him you can bust him up and that's what gong is trying to do he's just out thinking it yeah to me it was like uh the uh, the arturo Gotti versus mickey ward boxing match yes. one of my favorite fights of all time where Gotti <sighs> needed to keep Mickey Ward on the outside. So he was jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. And Ward would just eat those jabs just so we could get close enough to throw that body shot. Mm -hmm. Kong is like eating the fire breath, eating the slaps, just to get close enough to get it within grappling range because that's where Kong has the advantage. So we see Kong get in close a couple of times. We see Kong do a good hip toss where he throws Godzilla. We see Kong do some good grappling, some good sumo slaps. It's, it's not It's not a hip toss. It's an arm dragon twist. <laughs> I got to ask you a question, though. Do you think somewhere in 1975, Sylvester Stallone is sitting around with people and they're going like, how are you going to do this last fight slide? He's like, you, you ever see that King Kong Godzilla thing? I'm, I, your Apollo is pretty much going to be a Godzilla. He's going to be, you know, I'm going to get, so I'm going to bust him up. Uh, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see one of uh, the inspirations for this movie actually was professional wrestling. Yes, you can totally see it. So you can see a lot of that in the way this fight is booked. And King Kong, because King Kong at this time is the bigger star than Godzilla, even in Japan. Mm -hmm. As we've said before, there wouldn't be a Godzilla if there wasn't a King Kong. That's why this movie is King Kong versus Godzilla, not Godzilla versus King Kong. Because in 1963, King Kong is still the box office draw. And in that movie remains one of the big box office draws of all time. So that's why you get King Kong with the baby face Ricky Morton booking. Where he gets beat down, gets back up, beat down, gets back up. And then beats down, gets beaten down for the third time. And then he gets hit by lightning. Not once, but twice. And that's when King Kong really just kicks off his Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior. Oh, it's a Hulk! It's a Hogan Hulk up all the way. Yes, I yeah, I completely believe that because he starts doing the shocking hands. He starts raining those fists in. He really gets the number of Godzilla until they both end up falling off the side of that cliff, rolling down the hill, and ending up in the water. 
Yeah, no, I I love all of it, all of the way that set up and the way that you you described it, that they used the professional wrestling and particularly Japanese professional wrestling, which is much more of a shoot style than American style. Like, yes, it's predetermined, but those dudes are laying some wood in along the way and giving people what they want. It had to end with them on the side of the mountain and Kong going, you know what? We're both going to hell. <laughs> and he, and he, he does the the Undertaker mankind off of the cage. And oh my God, he oh, killed yeah. him. And I mean, that in my head, I'm like, someone please cut that up and put that Jim Ross audio over this because I need that in my Scott life. Scott is my witness. He's broken in half. <laughs> I need that in my life. Someone out there in the internet world, do that for me, please. But yeah, no, I loved it. And I was sitting there going like, how's this going to end? Because again, saw this as a kid, had no memory of it anymore. And so I was like, how's this going to end? Because I'm pretty sure Kong ends up the winner, but how's he going to do it? And he does what I thought he should do all along. Get inside, bust him up, and choke slam that son of a bitch off the side of the mountain. And that's exactly what he does. And um, what's, what's even better, though, is that Kong comes up out of the water like, peace, I'll see y'all. You know, and then you have to have the voiceover like, but where's Godzilla? He may not be gone. You know, like setting up the sequel that never will be. Tease forever. It's it's the perfect setup for a sequel and it's the perfect setup for more Godzilla. After this kind of fight, you could clearly see that Godzilla got, both of them gave each other a pretty good beating. But you could definitely see that Godzilla gotten the good had gotten the good beaten into him because if it, it almost feels like they did a not a double turn but a, a face turn at the end because it's like King Kong just walking off as kind of the I respect you handshake that puts the, that turns the heel baby face in professional wrestling terms. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I don't know, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was fun. It's the it's the exact way this has to be booked. I mean, that, that's exactly what this should end like. Because even though, you know, I, I did, I did give Eric Bischoff crap for it about the no finish side or whatever, th- there's actually like some good, there's some good booking psychology to that. You, you this isn't the blow off. We're not ready for that yet. We, we've got to set up the tension. And so I, I liked it. I thought it was fun. And again, you have to have your useless humans come back and be a part of this at the end in some way. So that gives them a reason to exist to go, but Godzilla's not dead. I don't see him floating, you know, right? Yeah, it's clear. It's clearly set up to be a no finish finish. That is still, the crowd gets to pop and everybody gets to go home happy. Yes, yes. But what about you, Jay? Are you happy with this movie? Let's get to our final thoughts, our recommendations, and our popcorn ratings for King Kong versus Godzilla 1963. I gotta say, if if you're gonna bother with the, the new movie, and you probably already have at this point, uh, if you're gonna watch that stuff, you owe it to yourself to go back and see the origins of these creatures. Not just as homework. But there's so much of this that they still use about the creatures and even the human side of it, too. The human characters in the new Godzilla series of movies are as useless as any of these. They really are. I'm sorry. They just are. I'm sorry, uh, good Olsen sister and um, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Coach Taylor and all the other people I love uh, who are in those movies. But Ken Watanabe, but you're all worthless um, because it's really about the two monsters. And so watching this movie, I have to judge it not on the human stuff, because I know that's worthless. What's the monster fights worth? And those are really fun. And this movie is really fun. The best part about it, too, is it's 90 minutes. They get all of this done in no time flat. And look, to the credit, those new ones are all under two hours. So like they, they figured that out, too. Like We don't have to go four hours and you know do all that stuff to, to get our point across. This movie goes by quick. It's an easy watch. Total fun. Uh, I give it a large popcorn and do do high recommend. I think it's a lot of fun. 
And I'm going to join you with that large popcorn. We are going to be popcorn pals on this one. Because, yeah, it is a blast. It is a lot more fun than I remembered. The monster fights happen earlier than I remembered. And the monster fights are longer and better than I remembered them to be. Maybe I got this confused with many of the other Godzilla vs. sequels. And kind of lumped it with that. But, yeah, I am a big fan of this movie. It looks great. It's free on the Internet Archive, so go check that out while it's still around. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, Blu-ray rip, and it's a beautiful Blu-ray in and of itself. There is a quality difference between the stuff that was shot for the American audience and what was shot for the Japanese audience, but it's not going to be big enough to give you any problems. And yeah, 100% large popcorn. It gives you the giant monster fight that you want, and it leaves you wanting more, which is kind of a really impressive... Uh, a really impressive... Um, feat to accomplish for what is especially or what is uh, in this case the first movie of it's going to be a long long series of giant monster movies for big g absolutely and i agree with all of that just a ton of fun and uh, glad we got to talk about it here um because it's it's in the brain everybody's talking about these kind of movies now so this is the time to go back and discover stuff that and maybe you didn't know existed. You hadn't thought about since you were a kid like me and Ron, or, you know, you, you just want to do some, some horror homework as it were. This is, this is the way to do it. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's definitely worth seeking out. And also what is worth seeking out is information about the film strip podcast on social media. Well, we've got a link tree. We've got a uh, film strip pod on Twitter. We've got a uh, film strip podcast on Facebook yeah, film strip pod is is uh, the Twitter, the Insta page, and the Letterbox page. Film strip podcast is the Facebook page. Jay, do you have anything you'd like to plug here uh, before we end this podcast? Yeah, you know, if you're into college football in the NFL, uh, check out a little thing I do called the Gridiron Breakdown. You go to thegridironbreakdown.com, you'll find links to our Facebook page. That's where we do the live show uh, when we do those, and uh, we talk about stuff year-round about football. Right now, we're not doing a weekly show because, obviously, there's no games uh, that we're covering, but we talk about a lot of stuff, and uh, you can also get links to our YouTube page. It's got an archive of all the recordings, and uh, you can go to our Anchor page as well if you want to listen to the audio version of the gridiron breakdown podcast yeah 100% check that out it is jay and Lindsay from here on film strip and, and brian some other wonderful people yeah. brian that's right yeah. i forget the name of the guy and, and the alan guy, who's but... not on film strip but uh, who i've been podcasting with longer than anyone you know i've been doing that show since 2008 in one form or another yeah 100% check that out it is a lot of fun to listen to and it is very educational especially if you are into football or even if you're not i would definitely check that out and if you want more of me, you can find me on Den of Geek. I will be have just finished up The Walking Dead by the time this particular episode drops, and I'll be moving on to my next thing, which I'm not sure what that is yet. It'll be whatever they tell me. You can find almost a decade of me talking about stuff on uh, the Den of Geek website. Just search up my name, Ron Hogan, there. You can find all kinds of stuff going back for much longer than I care to think about. We'd like to thank you guys for joining us here at Filmstrip, and we appreciate your support. Please promote this podcast on social media. Please share it. Please send it out to your friends. Like it. Give us five-star rating on whatever podcatcher you use to catch this particular pod. Bonus points if you're an Apple user. I need to, I need to work on this closing because this closing <laughs> sucks. Yes, like, rate, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your acquaintances, tell strangers on the street. Tell whoever you got to tell. Have them check us out. And as always, for Jay, I'm Ron. 
You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.